We learn so many things about the nature of the United States and our repetition of, of a really deadly kind of racial politics and when the levees broke. When I think about what we learn about our nation, I'm thinking of a couple of things. One, uh, the way we imagine, I think, generally, imagine ourselves to not be like other countries where the country that intervenes for good or bad, usually bad, when other countries need assistance, whether it's a humanitarian uh, catastrophe, um, civil war, you know, any kind of political strife, you know, that's where the United States is often predatory, but it's also where we see something about the political and social economy of, of uh, charity nations, right? Nations that give charitably to humanitarian causes and nations that receive it. And there's this amazing moment. I mean, it's amazing, uh, certainly, when teaching, because it's something I've found that a lot of students fixate on, and for good reason. In the first volume, around the 58-minute, 45-second mark, where Lee has a number of people discussing uh, international offers of intervention from Cuba, from Venezuela, and uh, the offers are to help with refugees and the language of refugees and international assistance and aid and intervention. That was in the air at the time. And there's something really revealing in that moment for me about our own habits as Americans and thinking about our nation that, that Lee reveals. One, this idea that we are a nation that, that gives aid, does not receive aid. All of a sudden is flipped on its head and there's something deeply morally instructive and uh, politically corrective about that. Politically corrective in that it shows that any sense that that's the kind of nation we are is premised on the idea that our victims would be white and that if victims of, of, a, of a catastrophe are not white, especially if they are black, as in the case of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, then we produce this category that usually is talked about as produced in other places, which is a category of the refugee, the category of a nation in need of international assistance. And what we find in that moment, and Lee juxtaposes these sort of Venezuelan and Cuban uh, uh, offers of aid and intervention, humanitarian aid and intervention, contrasts that or juxtaposes that to the way the police set up borders between neighborhoods in New Orleans, neighborhoods where race and class were the only defining feature. It's literally a street or a roll of a hill, right, at a stop sign. And at that hill on that road were both, uh, uh, you know, state police or town, city police, and also just local citizens with guns, drawing a line and keeping basically they're a fellow citizens on the other side of this road and in constant danger rather than integrate right at some basic level the neighborhood they were protecting right so the racial politics and the sort of social and political economy of of anti-black racism comes out in that moment of the militarization of neighborhood borders but also in the intervention offers of external nations 
who were really, um, you know, doing the kind of work that we imagine the United States and similar kinds of countries do. So there's something rhetorical there, but was also a material reality that I think is really important. There's also a moment in the fourth volume around the, the 48 minute mark, the fourth volume, uh, where we get to see a disaster capitalism in practice. And it's something that anyone who's followed post-Katrina New Orleans knows is a central part of, of the city's present and future, which is that one of the things that happened immediately upon, um, immediately upon the, the, the catastrophe of the levees breaking were, were predatory capitalists coming in to buy up properties for cheap knowing that they could rebuild them, repopulate them with uh, white middle-class and upper-middle-class people, both from inside New, inside New Orleans and Louisiana, but also from across the country, that New Orleans would be a draw this way. It could be a hot city with you know, affordable property, but too expensive, right, in that way for its, uh, its long-standing black population. So the way property values in disaster capitalism factor into that fourth volume, especially uh, towards the end, the last third or so of the fourth volume of When the Levees Broke, I think is an incredibly important commentary. It's a commentary that's not new, either in Spike Lee's own cinema or in our own national consciousness, but there's something especially grotesque about it in the way it emerges in this fourth volume because it emerges after we've seen this detailed treatment of, of black New Orleans, its history, its uniqueness, and the cultural genocide that such disaster capitalism enacts. There's such a deep feeling in that moment that's what's being destroyed, or not just you know where people live or have lived, but what's being destroyed in destroying where people have lived in changing the demographics of those neighborhoods is destroying an entire history of a people. And so that very same moment that Lee gets us to see all of, all of those elements of disaster capitalism, we can't but link it to history and to uh, cultural genocide. But really, I think what, it, you know, and this is what I wanted to mostly talk about in this piece, uh, or, or I guess I could say just, um, you know, talk about, you know, as, as a way of sort of gesturing towards really detailed readings to come for, for different scenes. But um, it's the way Lee deals with mourning in the film. And he does it in a way that is so intimate and so difficult to, to witness as viewers but, of course, that's the point, is to make something difficult for us to see in order, in that difficulty of seeing, in order for us to really understand the depths of pain, of displacement. That what we're talking about when we talk about displacement is nothing like an abstraction. It's absolutely the terror of cultural genocide. He does that in a few different ways. You know, one scene that really stands out for me, I think stands out for anyone who watches the entire documentary, is the scene in which Terrence Blanchard takes his mother back to her home. And 
it's this it starts with with Blanchard and Lee with the camera uh, and two women, his mother and friend, um, driving through the neighborhood to go to the home. And it's the first time this 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 older woman has seen her home since since the levees broke. And in the bus or in the the van that they're they're riding into the house, I think it's important that he sits that Lee has a sit with these women. And what you see is that you know they've had their hair done. You know they know they're going to be on camera, and this is a big event to go back and see their home. But it's also completely terrifying because we know, having seen all of these other, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, hours at this point of treatment of of the catastrophe of when the levees broke, we know what they're going to see. But they aren't quite sure what they're going to see. This is around, by the way, the around forty three minute forty three thirty in volume three. And they return to this house, and they, in returning to the home, they there's this this you know the 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 older woman's friend, so Terrence Blanchard's mother's friend. You see her sort of withdraw from the group, like she can't quite know. She doesn't quite know how to enter the home, seeing what she sees, and Blanchard's mother absolutely breaks down and it is one of the most heart-wrenching scenes i've ever seen in a film and she says i knew it would be bad but i didn't know that it would be this bad and there's something so um immovable about that pain when it's expressed in that moment it's immovable in that there is no justification for it the woman is is not naive. I mean, she's been through serious shit. But this was more than she ever imagined. And she says, it's too much. It's too much. And they walk through the home, and, and Blanchard himself is completely rattled and unable to deal with both seeing this woman's home destroyed and uh, also bearing witness to her witness. And then that way, I think Blanchard is there not only as like a guide, you know, to t taking her to the home, but he's also there as a proxy for us that he's witnessing her witness and his pain in witnessing her witness is our pain in the sense. I mean, he has, his is more intimate. He's there physically, you know, they, their, their relation uh, makes all the difference in the world, but just cinematically. I think we're drawn into Blanchard, Terrence Blanchard's position in the scene precisely because he's the witness to witness and we know ourselves to be witnessing. And we don't know how to look, right? We don't know how to sit. We don't know how to breathe when that scene is on. It's that disorienting. And there's something for me, I don't want to call it comforting, but sort of confirming about Blanchard's own inability to be present in the moment in any kind of coherent way, the way he is clearly upended and overwhelmed and himself unsure how to be. There's something confirming about that. It's not comforting. It's deeply discomforting because it confirms 
that what we are seeing is undigestible. What this woman is going through is for her undigestible. And in that moment of feeling that undigestibility and that immovable stone of pain, I think Lee gets us inside the deep memory meaning of the catastrophe of when the levees broke, the film and also the phenomenon of the levees breaking. Deep inside that pain and that memory, because it's a home, because that a home, it's a home that has everything. We see books, we see photographs, we see, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, items from the kitchen. Everything is scattered around, and not where it's supposed to be. I think there's at some point, woman actually says, you know, nothing's where it's supposed to be. And it's so cratering, but it's cratering in a way that I think attunes our sense of memory, sense of connection to memory as viewers, that is staged across the all four volumes by Lee as a way of intervening in an historical narrative about New Orleans, the hurricane, the levees, and its aftermath. It's one thing to tell that history. It's another to draw us in and embed us in that memory that mourns total loss, that mourns this notion, right? This broad, expansive phenomenon of what she says about her own home. Nothing is where it belongs. Nothing is where it belongs. And I think then about the scene that's not too far from that on disaster capitalism, where, and I forget as I'm talking, I forget who the person is, but um, I think it's a city government official and he says, you know, I think what we're going to see here, as a journalist actually, uh, uh, from the Times Picking, and he says, you know, I think what we're going to see in New Orleans is it's going to become a predominantly white city and predominantly middle and upper middle class city. And that moment then when we get inside the memory of Terrence Blanchard's mother in her home saying nothing is where it's supposed to be is connected to that moment of reckoning with the future of New Orleans. All the history that we've learned that I talked about in the previous uh, piece on when the levees broke, all that historical accounting for black New Orleans and its uniqueness. And in that moment, then, when we understand its history and then its memory, that infusion of deep and undigestible affect, then I think we can start to hear the, the bookend songs, right? The bookend songs, right? The, the song that opens the film, which is Louis Armstrong's um, uh, uh, When I Miss New Orleans. And that song is, I mean, it's an absolutely beautiful uh, tune, right? Uh, Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans, the name of the song? Absolutely beautiful song, just powerful trumpet, gorgeous vocals. And it's that moment where you know Pops is from New Orleans. It has a, a depth of feeling right there, right? And then it closes... Uh, with Fats Domino's song, Walking to New, to New Orleans, and another New Orleans icon. And the song 
you know, walking in New Orleans, uh, walking to New Orleans is, is, you know, both of them are about black history's intimacy to the city of New Orleans. But now we've seen in the body of the film between these bookends, the way memory and history have come together to chart this other path for the city. And that other path fills us both with melancholy and rage, right? That what we get in when, when Terrence Blanchard is our proxy witness to the witness of mourning, of mourning the loss of, of this home where nothing is where it is supposed to be, becomes in relation to disaster capitalism and its demographic transformation of the city of New Orleans. For me, you move from mourning, which is everything's out of place, how can it be put back in place, to disaster capitalism, which leads to a melancholic rage. Melancholic in the sense of like nothing here can be reconciled. It's over, right? The white capitalists have won. They've gotten what they wanted. They finally got the flood they wanted to drive the majority of black people out of these neighborhoods so that it can be repopulated by whites. And it's melancholic because of its, of its lack of any promise or possibility of reconciliation. But it's also rage because this is a political question. And like Phyllis LeBlanc said, you know, that this is, this is a version of the auction block, right? It's this separation of people from their homes and their families and dispersing them across the nation. And the rage that comes with that of this deep political injustice that's as old as the slave markets in New Orleans and as new as the hurricane in its aftermath. Now, I want to put that alongside this other question as a sort of final remark on the documentary series. And there's so much more that can be said. But, you know, Spike Lee in Four Little Girls, I think, made the really difficult choice to show the autopsy photos of the, of the dead girls. And I, I think it's a, it's a, it was a terrifying choice for Lee to make because of all the questions of voyeurism and consumption of black death that defines an anti-black nation like ours in the United States. But Lee, in that, wanted to craft a way of showing those bodies so that we knew what we were seeing and why we were seeing it. Now, what that meant in Four Little Girls is that, you know, we had to understand what it means for a bomb to go off and what it does to a human body, what it does to a child's body. That that's what the Four Little Girls and the 16th Street bombing, that's what those phrases are actually talking about at a raw material level. That's important because it is also the choice that Lee makes in When the Levees Broke. He makes the choice to show photographs or, or footage of dead bodies bloated by the sun and water uh, floating uh, in the streets of New Orleans in the aftermath of the hurricane and the flooding. 
And again, that, you know, it's a question that I, I pose to my students and I pose to myself, you know, what are the ethics of putting these dead bodies on the screen to put black death on the screen for our consumption? Because every act of visuality, every look is a form of consumption, right? But what we can do is, is as artists, what Lee can do as a filmmaker is create a, a, a long uh, discourse in which those bodies are shown not as a shock, not as something that's consumed in a sort of raw form, but instead is consumed, I would say, as the un undigestible figures that they are. It's impossible to look at, but you have to look at it. That's what the film is about. You have to look at this, although it is impossible to look at it. We don't want to. It's too much. And it's too much because, and this is something that comes up in this really important scene for me um, in uh, the, the second volume around the 58 minute mark. And they're talking about, they're talking about uh, what happened at the Superdome and someone's talking about his grandmother dying in her wheelchair and he didn't know what to do and the people you know sort of in charge at the superdome said you know put her outside there's a, you know a pile of bodies out there put her body out there and we'll attend to it later and this is just such a horrifying moment because you know, and it's said explicitly there that there's no dignity for the dead, right? There's this, it's, it's too much already that black people have died unnecessarily because of racist human indifference, you know, white indifference to black life that led to the levees breaking, that led to this math, that mass death and mass displacement event. But then that's doubled in this moment where the dead have, don't have the dignity that they deserve as the dead. And the idea of putting your grandma on a pile of other bodies of dead elderly people, it's not just a gruesome image, right? And it's not given to us on the screen as a gruesome image or gruesome moment, but instead as this deep existential pain where it's not just death, but it's the lack of dignity in death. And I think when Lee shows those bloated bodies floating in the water in the sun, and they've been dead and neglected for you know days at you know at a certain point, and not taken care of, there's a sense in which it's an overwhelming and grotesque spectacle, and there's no doubt about that. But I think the way Lee is able to couch those or embed those images in a wider discourse around anti-blackness, a wider discourse about the, the hatred and indifference towards black people and the, the indifference towards black suffering, that when we see that, what we see is less the, or is not simply the indignity of this kind of dying but we see the indignity of that dying for what it is, which is something that's produced 
by anti-black racism that's produced by institutional white privilege and white power expressed here in terms of a hatred even of black death, right? That it's not a hatred of black life, but it's also a hatred of black death so that black people don't even die in the way that human beings should die, right? With dignity, right? With integrity, with care, with concern. And so those bodies, when we see them floating, there's something so grotesque about it that is not just grotesque because we're seeing something terrible that's happened to a human body. That's for sure. It's a visceral thing to see. But it's more than just a grotesque, visceral thing to see. In fact, what the real grotesqueness of it is the grotesqueness of our ethics and politics as a nation. That somehow this happening is set alongside, and there's so many of these moments, especially around these scenes of black death that Lee puts on the screen for us, also this discourse that's emerging at the federal government level and at the level of the media of uh, national pride of like we've come together or we are one as a nation in this moment as the people of New Orleans suffer. And there's something so deeply disgusting about that lie in the moment, but it's also a double discourse for Lee. On the one hand, it's a grotesque lie. How could you say this? about national pride and unity at a moment when people are suffering unnecessarily in these ways and being separated from their families and communities forcibly, right, with no choice. There's something grotesque about saying that. But there's also something really important about talking about national pride. This is who we are as a nation. And in some ways telling the truth accidentally, right, or indirectly by saying, you know, this is what we are as a white nation. We are a nation that doesn't even allow the dignity of black dying. That black death can't even happen with dignity, right? That the purest expression of the kinds of white racism, the kinds of anti-black racism by whites that have defined this country from the beginning, right? That that is manifest and expressed in such clear and distinct form when you see those bodies floating, when you hear those that story about the grandmother dying in her wheelchair and having to be put on a pile of corpses that at some point later will be taken away. That sense in which indignity surrounds black death that indignity that surrounds black death goes beyond anything we might talk about biopolitics or necropolitics because it's not just the production of death or the management of life but a kind of moral intervention at even at the even at the moment of necropolitical or biopolitical execution where it's that it's not enough just to die or to kill or to not let live but also this thing that defines when the levees broke and its aftermath. That is, the disappearance of any trace of dignity in black death. And in that way, we as a nation showed ourselves in uncomplicated terms. We as a white nation 
as an anti-black nation showed ourselves in such clear, distinct, and bold terms to be what we've always been and what we still are. And when, when the levees broke makes us sit with that, it's not enough just to say George Bush doesn't care about black people. We have to say that necropolitics and biopolitics deployed in the killing or not letting live of black people is doubled in the moment of anti-black racism to eliminate even the dignity of being targeted by the state, of being targeted by whites. It's like that death itself has to be the death of a dignified death. That for me is the biggest and most undigestible takeaway from when the levees broke. That necropolitical and biopolitical languages around anti-black racism and death is not enough to explain what happened. We need this other level of a moral and ethical erasure of dignity in black death. And if that's not undigestible, if that doesn't call us to the melancholic rage that animates the film, then the film has done none of its work. But I think that's exactly the work that the film does and does so well.